I'll look today at uh, Romans chapter 7, just the first six verses, um, in which Paul is really continuing a thought from chapter 6. So in Romans, in verse 7, he's going to clearly uh, take up a different subject. So let's read verses uh, 1 to 6. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law <clears throat> so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Um, Paul in, is dealing in this section with the relation between two kinds of subject, the subject of the law, and then how the subject of the law, the person, is transformed in Christ. Um, the question that he's raising with this illustration of the married woman uh, is the identity of a person, is the identity of the subject tied to the contingencies of legal circumstance, gender, ethnicity, marital status, or does our identity float free of these particulars? Who is this, you know, uh, who are we? Is Paul advocating the notion that the Christian subject, as he's going to say in Galatians, being no longer Jew nor Greek, male nor free male, is completely free of these contingencies? I don't think so. Uh, or are these differences, in fact, constitutive of the subject? Mm, that's not true either. That is, our whether we're married, Jew, Gentile. Uh, what is the basis of our identity is the question here. <clears throat> and in verses 1 to 4, Paul gives us two ways, all in this illustration of the woman, of being a person, of being a, a human subject. He compares the believer delivered from the law uh, with an adulteress. Uh, or uh, rather, Paul's comparing the, the person who is under the law with an adulteress who after her husband dies then is free to consort, you know, what the word here in Greek, uh, to consort with another person. 
another lover. Paul's metaphor depends upon the tradition, you know, in Genesis, remember that of knowing, you know, when Adam knew Eve, they bore a child. So knowing here, this woman, knowing this man has to do with sexual intercourse. Adam's knowing of Eve produces Cain and Abel. This, the knowing in Genesis of the fall of man involves two kinds of knowing. There's the knowing of good and evil in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but then there's knowing God, and these two realms in some way have come into conflict. In verse 7 of this chapter, Paul is going to introduce what many take to be the garden scene in Genesis. Um, when he talks about, I did not know what it was to covet, apart from the law, thou shalt not covet. And then he describes kind of the fall, his fall, but maybe it's referring to the fall of Adam and Eve. Um, so the knowledge is sex, or the knowledge is experience metaphor, is linked to an understanding in which knowing and being or the way in which we are established ourselves have been disrupted. What's happening in Genesis, you will know and in your knowing you will be like God. But of course, it's actually a death-dealing knowledge. They imagine that they can attain to knowledge of God. And so Adam and Eve's knowing of one another and their knowing of God those are two ways, or, or rather that's who they are before the fall. It is their mode of being in subjectivity. I've just said a lot of things here, but I'm saying something very quite simple. We can know God, and that's one way of being a person, or we can know good and evil, or we can know in a sinful sort of way, and that's another way of being a person. And that's another way of being a subject. This mode of being uh, and subjectivity of knowing God and being uh, fully human is disrupted then by sin, and that's precisely what's restored to us in Christ. And as long as Adam and Eve, and this is over and against, in Catholicism and in you know uh, St. Augustine, he pictures it, that uh, they picture that sin is kind of a fall into the discovery of human genderedness or sexuality. But I believe that as long as Adam and Eve were in right relationship to God, this was conjoined to the right kind of marriage relationship. When they turn to the alternative knowledge of good and evil, that's not the beginning of their married life or their, you know, uh, sexual consummation of their marriage, it is the disruption of both their marriage and their relationship to God. They are alienated against God and against one another. Where their life together before with the fall was one in which they found identity together. You know, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Their identity after the fall is an identity of death. Their antagonistic. They're pitted against one another. She did it. No, he did it. So within Paul's illustration in Romans 7, 1 to 4, I believe we he's describing to us the transition 
from being outside of Christ, what that person looks like, that form of subjectivity, and it could be Judaism, but it's not just Judaism, but it's anybody who's under the law, and that's the universal problem. He's describing that situation and every possibility in that situation. And then he's describing what it's like to become a Christian. To state it simply, he's describing the transition from law to love. What it's like to be a person under law and what it's like to be a person with true love. And there's actually three kinds of mode here. Uh, you know, the, there's two distinctive orientations to the law. In the illustration, as long as Paul's talking about the woman and her husband, uh, he, you know, the, the possibilities are either she is married, and if she consorts with another man, she's an adulteress, or she's her husband has died, and if she consorts with another man, she's not an adulteress. Um, the woman who would consort with another man uh, is like someone who is a subject under the law. Is she a sinner or is she not a sinner? Well, it depends upon the state of her husband. What does her husband represent here? The law, right? Dead or alive. That determines whether her you know, relationship to a man is lawful. Same thing, same sort of thing she's doing, whether she's married to the man or not married to the man, uh, whether it's sin or adultery or whether she's being true to the marriage, the same woman doing the same thing can either be an adulteress or a good wife. But the point is, in Paul's illustration, in either case, the law is the controlling factor in her life. And whether it's law, sin, or law, marriage, they have their meaning only in reference to this thing outside of her. Until you know about the state of her husband. You know, if you see a woman with a, another man, uh, is her husband dead or alive? That determines what she's doing. And so uh, it determines, you know, the act that she's uh, of her consorting. So the force of the law, and that's what in Paul's, this, is a, this illustration is a complicated illustration. But in the, in the illustration, the, the force of the law is represented by the condition of the husband. The identity of the woman, adulteress or not, is contingent upon uh, an element or force that is at once beyond her, the law, and yet it's definitive of her. Her knowing, as in knowing another man, is what Paul says here, is determinative of her identity. Consorting with another man may or may not fall under you know, the identity of, uh, the, uh, of adultery. A living husband represents a law and force, and a transgressive consorting, a transgressive knowing, while a dead husband represents a law without force. Okay, that's, that's the setup. It's a very complicated 
illustration that Paul is using, and he's going to complicate it even more. This, you know, this illustration of the woman. And so you have to identify, you have to follow what he's saying here. Uh, but let me take you through. The woman that has a husband, Paul says, is bound by law to the husband. And what is this relationship? Well, it's the marriage relationship. It's the prototypical social obligation. Marriage being the foundation of family and of society. But of course, it's also the prototypical love relationship. But the problem occurs when these two things, the love relationship and the prototypical social relationship, are pitted against one another. When social life appears to be dominated as you know by an externally imposed law. And what we tend to do then, well, that's, you know, uh, it, you know, I don't even recognize myself for this law, this thing that is imposed upon me. It's opposed upon me over and against who I really am. My love then this deep love that I have for this other man or this other person resides outside of the law. Paul is using a universal illustration of how we all stand in regard to the law. We imagine that we have this deep secret self that in some way the law stands over and against. That's the predicament of sin. The law can only be said to bind when desire is in some way curtailed by the law. And Paul's about to say that. This desire that we've all become subject to is curtailed by the law. If love, and of course love here is, we, uh, is understood as synonymous with this desire, well then the only kind of true love you could have would be adulterous love. And obviously that's, that's not the love that Paul wants to promote. Um, so we can only experience the law, the imposition of the law, as over and against yourself in this original understanding. The woman whose husband is alive but who has fallen in love with another man experiences law as that which opposes her love. Think about that. Is there such a thing in God's good universe in which the law can stand opposed to love? That's the situation that Paul is saying is the universal misunderstanding. Her love or her enjoyment in this is synonymous with sin. Her notion that she is loved by her consort is in turn to imagine that deep within her is some precious treasure, some element about herself that can only be loved and cannot be submitted to the law. Another way of saying this, quite simply, is forbidden fruit is always the most delicious, you know. And sometimes we imagine that forbidden fruit is the only fruit that tastes good. But the law here that Paul is picturing is a distorted one. It's the law that, you know, in which the exception creates the rule. Uh, you know, the idea that the, uh, if the forbidden fruit is the tastiest, is it 
really tastier, or is it the forbiddenness, is it an illusion that creates the taste? So her love is a symptom of, a pro, of the prohibition. You get what I'm saying? Her love for this other man is made possible only by the possibility that it's forbidden. Now we're not just talking about this strange situation, what Paul is saying, this is the human condition. That who we are as human subjects is over and against the law. That's our condition. And in fact, our very nature as persons outside of Christ is that we stand over and against this law in the same way that this woman stands over and against the law in her relationship. I don't know if you've ever read Franz Kafka. Uh, he has a little story, a short story called The Trial. And in the trial, you know, there's a doorman standing at the door and won't let him in. <clears throat> it's a kind of a... Uh, and, and the point of the story is, yeah, but the only reason the doorman is there is for that one character. You have created this situation. And that's really what Paul is describing. The elaborate system of the law which bars uh, from you know the person entering a certain door is built by himself. You need the obstacle in order to define the subject. And the law is as, as a construct, not God's law, and I think that's what we need to be careful here. The law is a construct erected by and for those who stand outside it in this understanding. If the woman in Paul's illustration were to love her husband and not consort with other men, the law would disintegrate. There's no law for that. So the woman as the one who is subject to the law represents an orientation of inherent transgression. The subject is caught in this power uh, insofar as she does not identify with the law. And the law is this transcendent foreign force that serves to oppress what is perceived as, you know, a relationship. The law becomes an obstacle to be overcome in order for love to be possible. Let me suggest that's the way that people often picture Christianity. Oh, the law is the obstacle that needs to be overcome for love to be made possible. No, that's a perverse understanding of the law. And that's a perverse understanding of who God is. This sort of love is not agape love, but rather it's a form of love or enjoyment in which the obstacle con constitutes the love. The impossible love, the impossible subject, is the only subject. The woman's living husband is a necessary part of this sort of relationship. Sin is the very intimate, resistant core on account of which the subject experiences the relationship to the law as one of subjection. Paul's going to describe this as a life of slavery to fear. And I think what he's just described, then we have this sense of the law oppressing us, crushing our true self. But this is a false understanding. The idea that we're attached or we have some deep aspect of ourself, uh, some remainder that stands outside of the law, that there's some resistant core or a 
remainder on the part of the subject, uh, or some special treasure within us that only you know the, that the law can't account for. The deception or illusion that sin works is to construe the law as a closure of identity, uh, which by its very nature excludes love. Can law include love? In this understanding, it cannot, but I'm saying that's the wrong understanding. Um, this is sin. This is the tension uh, of sin. Uh, this idea that the true self or true love stands outside the law. The subject that can never fully recognize itself in the law. What was the law? This is the huge mistake that we have made. The law was a covenant love relationship originally, right? The law, the law does not stand over and against this love relationship. The law is a marker of the relationship in the Old Testament. But because of sin, we misconstrue, we misunderstood, we misunderstand the law. The woman in Paul's illustration might say to herself, I know the law says not to consort, but the law does not account for my true self. So the subject of the law is constituted in and through two incomparable dimensions. The supposedly you know, real love and the, sim the, sim the, the, the symbolic law. And then there is, you know, what we picture is there is this dualism of inward and outward and inward love and outward oppressive law. But let me suggest those two, there is no such dualism. There is no such oppression, but that is the lie of sin. To imagine that the law oppresses us and that our true self then is over and against the law. That's not the truth, that's a deception. The disappearance of the gap between the domain of the law and the domain of the you know, inward self or the true subject or the true love uh, would be not a resolution of this problem, but those two domains depend upon a kind of antagonism. The subject depends upon this antagonism. And that's what Paul's about to describe in 7-7, this self-antagonistic su subject. I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do. Paul is saying that is a necessary antagonism in a sinful subject, in a sinful situation. The subject depends upon this antagonism. So the woman in Paul's illustration represents the choices available under this orientation to the law. Whether the husband is dead or alive defines her and seems to represent every alternative. Now, it's about, if it's been complicated up to now, Paul is going to twist it in a new way. Up to this time, we've been talking about the woman and the dead or living husband. But now suddenly he says, you were made dead to the law to be joined to another. Suddenly we've switched positions. Uh, Paul finds something, in other words, the law for Paul is not everything. He finds something prior to the law, he finds something after the law, which puts the law into a different perspective. Uh, 
He moves without transition from the living woman to the dead husband. Uh, he is, after all, the only one who he's talked about living or dead. Uh, and with verse 4, Paul's discourse takes the, the perspective previously reserved. That is, now we're speaking from the place of the husband. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. <clears throat> this woman represents every position, every possibility outside of Christ. The law defines her. The law determines her. But now suddenly Paul gives us a different alternative. You have died with Christ. That you might belong to another. The dead husband had represented the force of the law. And now Paul places his readers within that force. From which the law was exercised. Paul had described the law in the instance of the dead husband. And he uses a word, uh, katargatai. And the question is, how is this word to be, a, you know, what happens to the law in Christ? Is it abolished? Is it done away with? And the idea is that it's suspended. It still applies, but the manner in which it applies is to suspend its force. The law no longer stands over and against us. It's no longer a power for death against us. The word Paul employs and which he develops, I believe he's developing his own technical meaning, is simply to make the law void. This is what A.T. Robertson says about this. Uh, the husband stands for a void created in the law. That is Christ. Where does the law come from? Christ embodies the law, right? And now we stand in the place of the law because we stand in the place of Christ. No longer do we stand outside of a relationship with God. And the law then in enforce, you know, this is the two different ways of knowing God. We can know God as a force of the law, or we can know God as Abba, Father, agape love. And that's the difference that Paul is illustrating here. But Christ has suspended the law in and through his death, and that when we die, and we've died with Christ, then the law is also suspended. Okay, I've, con I've totally confused you at this point. <laughs> let, me, let me see if I can give you an illustration. Do you, do you, if you've studied science, you know there's Newtonian science and there's Einstein. Now you say, oh boy, this is going to really help now. In Newtonian science, the idea is that the science can tell us everything. The goal in Newtonian science was that it can say everything. It can say it all. But there was one problem with the Newtonian system. It could not account for the observer. It could not account for the scientist himself. And that's what Einsteinian theory of relativity is about. That Newton had no place other than, you know, where it, that's the problem after Isaac Newton is that God is either completely in the system and therefore not really God, or God is completely outside the system 
And that gives rise to deism in which God is completely outside of the universe. And neither of those is true. I think that describes the situation here, the misunderstanding, that we move from a law system in which everything is known by cause and effect and by law, but the subject itself stands either completely in or out, but doesn't really allow for the integration of those two things. In Christ, it's not that we stand over and against the law or that you know, the law completely controls us, but Christ is bigger than the law, right? God is bigger. The relationship with God, the covenant relationship with Abraham precedes the law, and Christ comes after the law. And so the law is not a problem. The law is not definitive of who we are. That's definitive of who we are as you know, in sin or outside of, of Christ. Um, this little illustration, verse 1 to 6, and Paul's word katargatai has a long history in philosophy and uh, in theology. Today there's a whole group of philosophers who like read, they're all atheists, and they like reading the Apostle Paul, and they especially like chapter 7. And there is a whole system of psychoanalysis that is in agreement, but misunderstands what Paul is saying here in chapter 7. And that is that when Paul uses this idea of suspending the law, you know, you identify completely with the law, they imagine that's the end of the story. This is Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, his entire philosophical system, I believe you can fit into Romans 7, 1 to 6. It's just negative. It's a negative thing. Oh, well, there's outside the law, completely controlled by the law, or there's suspension of the law. Yes, that's what Paul's saying, but how is the law suspended? Where is the void in the law? It's not a void that we create. It's a void that Christ has created in and through his death. To state it in, in a more simple way, that the positive force of the love of Christ stands in the place of that void. It's not just a negation of the law, but it's a positive replacement. And the subject then that uh, comes about as a result is a very different subject. In Romans 7, 4, this place is described as the place of the dead husband, but this is immediately re re identified with Christ. You also died to the law through the body of Christ. Dying to the law does not entail escape from the law alone, uh, or, or, you know, but it's a full identification but it's also a full identification with Christ, with the fruit of love in the work of the Spirit. Paul writes, Where my, Wherefore, my brethren, you were also dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you also that you should be joined to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bring forth fruit unto God. 
When we were in the, the flesh, the sinful passions which were through the law wrought in our members um, to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we have been discharged from the law. We've been set free from the law, having died to that wherein we were held, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not oldness of the letter. Um, so Paul's illustration, really what he's saying, well, we have uh, the woman whose husband has died. Uh, is, this is, he's describing this as a reorientation to the law. The release, the katargat, tie from the law is the manner in which Paul describes the significance, but the significance is not just a release, but a being joined to Christ. Um, and Paul has already done this in chapter 6. He's already said, we've died with Christ in baptism. The old self was crucified within, with him in order that the body might be brought to nothing. Same word, brought to nothing. Katargatai, suspended, made void. The body of sin or the body of death uh, that was the I in, in chapter 7 is entombed, is, is in baptism. The eye does not survive the death it dies in Christ. So in terms of this husband and wife illustration, the you in the first half of the verse locates the readers, you know, first we're with the, the woman, then we're with the dead husband, but then it says you have died to the law through the body of Christ. And then it switches again to a feminine the second half of the verse locates the readers with the wife who has died, remarried, and is expecting, so that you might belong to another who has been raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit in the sense of you know, childbearing. The believer knows Christ then, not in the sense of the knowledge of good and evil, but in a fully embodied since that we've been joined to Christ. Paul uses the image of marriage that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, but I'm not, you know, this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Um, so the eye is caught up with this forbidden desire. But this desire, uh, along with the eye, is dead. It's, it's put to death. We are no longer, in, in 6.1, uh, subject to the sin and the law. We're no longer subject to the confusion of sin and grace. Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Unfortunately, many of us have confused grace and sin. We've confused these two things as if grace in some way stands over and against the law. No, we stood over and against the law. As human subjects, we stood over and against the law. It's not that the grace and the law necessarily stand over and against one another. So in chapter 7, coveting of every kind has colonized the body and its members. In chapter 6, the expectation is that since the body is no longer infested with desire, the subject is able to control. We're able to be righteous. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God and your members to God because the law no longer has control of you. You no longer are subject to it as slaves. Uh, you no longer have an incapacity of the will. Um, so chapter 6 also uses this, this technical term of Paul's, of the suspension, the void. The body of sin is voided. The body of death is voided. Uh, the dynamic of the eye is undone. Now, where if you go and study psychology, unfortunately, I think they've misread, if they're Christians, they misunderstand Paul. What are they trying to save? What are, you, what are people trying to save? Uh, well, they would suspend the law, the superego is very often, and they would try to save the ego. Paul is saying, no, the whole construct is false. The whole notion that there is a law and an ego, a superego, and an ego pitted against one another. Paul says the whole dynamic, the whole construct is dead, entombed uh, by means of baptism into death. And so with Paul's metaphor in 7, to 1 to 4, what happens in the tomb is that we've been fused together with Christ, sum fatoi, that we've been uh, died not just to any death, but through the body of Christ. That now we truly can belong to another. We now truly can have communion, full relationship with another. As long as the I, that dynamic, that antagonism, that alienation is present, that dynamic keeps us from having the love relationship that Paul's picturing in Christ. Um, where that which constitutes the eye is voided, suspended, put to death. Uh, it's not simply an absence or potential which remains. This is what is being said in psychology and philosophy. But rather there's a new life, a new principle Verse 7, 6, this is the conclusion. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life. Let's sing our hymn of invitation.